Our text for this morning is Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 35, and this is the Word of God. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we... Thank you for your word, and we desire to honor you as we study it. God, would you help us? Help us please you and know you and understand you. Help us long deeply for the return of the Savior. Help us be about your work faithfully until that day. God, for anyone here who doesn't know you, we pray you will bring about, in the study of your word, conviction that leads to life given by your spirit, salvation by grace through faith. For all who do know you, We pray for conviction of sin and hope and courage and all the rest. God, be magnified as we study. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. When Jesus told his disciples that the temple in Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, his followers had to be shocked. Because the fall of the temple would be the end of the religious system that they had lived in for centuries. So the disciples asked Jesus, when is this going to happen? And they asked Jesus a loaded pair of questions that really contained in themselves even more than the disciples were ready to understand. The disciples asked Jesus, what would be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And the reason I say that those questions contain in themselves even more meaning than the disciples understood is because the disciples were not thinking when they asked those questions, I don't believe, they weren't thinking of the eschatological return of Jesus. When when they asked about Jesus' coming, they were asking, when are you going to go into Jerusalem and set yourself up as king as God has promised? The disciples didn't understand, and we know they didn't understand at this point, 
that Jesus was about to die and rise from the grave and ascend into heaven. So they had no way of knowing at that point to ask Jesus, when are you going to come back from heaven? Well, the disciples also knew that the fall of the temple, it was going to signify the end of an era, no doubt about it. But did they really understand that the arrival of Jesus as king would be literally the end of the age as we know it? I don't know. But even if the disciples did not understand how loaded with meaning their questions were, Jesus answers their questions with great meaning, both for his followers in the first century and for us today. How does he do that? Well, I suggested to you over the past couple of weeks that Jesus began to answer his disciples' questions by sketching out for them the age of the church. And I think he does that from verses 4 through 28. From the time of Jesus' departure from earth until his return to earth, Jesus' followers are going to live in a difficult world. From verses 4 through 14, Jesus tells us to expect that there are going to be many hardships like false teachers, wars, political unrest, natural disasters, famines, persecutions, apostasy. But... Verse 14 tells us that the age of the church is also an age of great victory because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to go all over the globe and God will save for himself a people out of every nation. Well, Jesus calls the hard things that we face in this age, he calls them birth pains. They are hardships that remind us that the return of Jesus is still to come. But those birth pains don't tell us exactly when his return is going to be. Well, from verses 15 through 21, Jesus then speaks to the issue of the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. That's one of the bitterest birth pains. And Jesus warned the people who were paying attention that they should flee Jerusalem whenever they saw the bad stuff getting ready to go down. Then verses 21 through 28, I believe Jesus there returns to summarizing the age by reminding the disciples to beware of false teachers and false Christs. And there he puts sort of a set of bookends on that section from 4 to 28 because the, the warning against false teachers is very similar to the warning that he made that he opened the section with in verses 4 through 5. And Christians, we are learned in that section that we're supposed to rely on the word of God and we're not supposed to follow teachers that claim that they've got a secret knowledge of God and we shouldn't be impressed even by miraculous signs. But instead, we are to know that the return of Jesus is going to be something so spectacular that everyone on earth is going to know it when it happens. And the glorious return of the Lord Jesus, I think that's what we're going to see first in our passage for today. If you want to take notes, there are only two key application points that we'll see as we watch Jesus tell his disciples about his coming a glorious, glorious, triumphal return. You know, many of you are interested in learning about eschatology. That's the study of the last things, if you don't know what that word means, the study of the end. 
And many of you may feel like our study of verses 4 through 28 has been surprisingly non-eschatological. Jesus has talked about the first century for sure. He's talked about the age of the church, no doubt. Now, I'll admit it's actually feasible that what Jesus said to his disciples here has both a near fulfillment in the first century, a fulfillment that applied to the disciples, and maybe it has fulfillments that are toward the end of the age. Good scholars will disagree on whether this has one or multiple fulfillments. But I can tell you this. What Jesus gives us now, I think, shows us his return at the very end. And we will get to see how it looks when the Savior returns. So what should we do when we think about these things? Point number one, hope in the return of Christ. Hope in the return of Christ. And that'll be the section from 29 through 31. Jesus said immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Verse 29 begins for us with a time marker, right? Something is going to happen immediately after the tribulation of those days. Well, which days is Jesus talking about? If you're following what I've been saying to you, then I'm saying Jesus will do this immediately after the difficult days of the age of the church. I think he's covering the whole era. He may be specifically talking about something that occurs at the very end of the age, but for sure, the whole age is referred to as tribulation. Once God has saved all the people that God is going to save. Once God has accomplished everything he intends to accomplish with the spread of the gospel to the nations, then the end will come. Immediately after those days are fulfilled, Jesus will come back to earth. In verse 29, we see Jesus borrowing language from a variety of Old Testament texts. That language of the sun will go dark, the moon fail to shine, the stars falling from the skies, that's been used more than one time before in the Bible to speak about world-changing political upheaval. You can look at Isaiah 13, 6 through 13, and read about the fall of Babylon at the hands of the Medes. Or Isaiah 34, verse 4, that talks about the fall of the people of Edom. And it uses very similar language. And I think we would agree, wouldn't we, that the return of Jesus to earth will indeed be a total transformation of the world's political structure. There's not going to be a government shutdown in, when Jesus comes back, at least not the way you think, right? And, and for myself, I do think that the end of the age of the church will be marked by a particular period of an outbreak of evil and tribulation 
that will involve dramatic, again, political upheaval, which will be happening during that time before the return of Christ. So part of what Jesus is saying when he says the sun goes dark, the stars fall, and he uses that language of political upheaval from the Old Testament, very well could be Jesus pointing to the fact that just before he returns, just as it's time for his return to come, there's going to be this political unrest. That could be there. But that doesn't mean that the return of the Lord Jesus is not going to be accompanied literally by some never-before-seen signs in the skies. Would that really surprise you that much? I would not be the least bit surprised to know that on the day when the Lord Jesus comes back to this earth, the sun goes dark and the moon stops shining and the stars look like they're falling down from the sky. Or Revelation 6 says the heavens will appear to roll up like a scroll snapping shut. This is going to look cool. Then what happens? In that supernaturally changed sky, there will appear the sign of the Son of Man. What's that mean? If you ask the early Christians, the first few centuries, many of them said, well, it must mean that there's going to be like a sign of a great cross in the sky. Chrysostom thought that. Now, there's not a verse in the Bible for that, but he thought maybe that's, that would be the sign of the Son of Man. Other people have said, no, the sign is the Son of Man appearing in the sky. That would be quite a sign to see Jesus in the sky, right? That There's a sign. But I kind of think, honestly, that it may be most fitting to say that there'll be something like a military banner or colors of some sort. Something that shows you that the conquering army is coming would make sense. But whatever that sign is, and we don't know what it's going to be, what it's going to look like, although when you see it, you'll know, it's going to be accompanied by the mourning of all the tribes of the earth. And that's borrowing language from Zechariah 12, verse 10 and following especially. The, the Zechariah passage in its context is pointing to the tribes of Israel mourning in repentance as they see and understand that they had rejected their Lord. And so that'll be part of it. Listen to verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 10 of Zechariah. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Perhaps with a repentant mourning, one could also imagine that the return of Jesus Christ will Well, there'll be many sinful people who have suppressed the true knowledge of God and they will mourn. There will be people who weep as they realize too late that Jesus is God, that God is holy, and that they are destined for judgment. Jesus says, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Here, Jesus is borrowing language from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And he's describing his literal return to earth. Jesus will physically, visibly appear in the sky over the world. He will descend, come back down out of heaven to the earth on a cloud in just the same way, by the way, that he went to heaven in Acts chapter 1 alive. Right? Remember Acts 1, 9 through 11? And when he had said these things, the Bible says, as they, the disciples, were looking on, 
He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, can you imagine the people just watching the sky going, that was neat. Behold, two men, angels, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That, by the way, is a great argument for us to use when people say, oh, the return of Jesus is merely a symbolic thing. Well, his departure wasn't symbolic. And they say he's coming back exactly the same way. The angels told the disciples, Jesus is coming back just the same way he left it. He's going to come back to the earth from the sky, returning on the clouds. By the way, riding on the clouds, that is like psalm language that reminds us that Jesus comes with the power of almighty God to rule over the world. And as Jesus said in Matthew 24, 27, when he returns on the, in the sky, on the clouds, power, great glory, it's going to be visible to all the earth, just like a, like a flash of lightning can light the whole sky up. Then verse 31, Jesus tells us, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. As Jesus returns to earth, the angels of God, they're going to go out sent by a great trumpet call. I have no idea what that's going to sound like. That's kind of cool though, huh? A globally heard trumpet call. And they will gather, the angels are going to gather to the Savior, the elect, the children of God from every part of the globe. Now this event is often referred to by many of our dear Christian friends as the rapture of the church. You guys have heard that word before? How many of you cringe when you hear that word? Stop it. You shouldn't. The word rapture, it's a Latin word, and it shouldn't bother you because the only thing the word means is to be caught up, picked up. I understand that many will disagree with a dispensational view of a secret return of Jesus Christ before his final return. But the word rapture only means that God, Jesus, through these angels, grabs his own and brings them up to himself. Does the Bible teach the rapture of Christians? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18 reads, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. We've heard about trumpets a moment ago. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. By the way, why should you not hate the concept of this? Because verse 18 then says, therefore encourage one another with these words. Again, I get why we would cringe at the word because of some poorly written fiction, but don't let the word make you forget that Jesus is going to grab his church. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 and following reads, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The way your body is right now can't make it into heaven forever. 
Uh, how many of you are cool with that? That your present body is not going to last forever. Yeah, y'all good? Randy, how are your knees, brother? Terrible. Amen. So, he says, nor does the perishable, that which can decay, inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That is not a nursery, church nursery verse. Think about that for a second. It's very funny. Um, we should. There you go, Don. All right. I just I appreciate that, sister. I do. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. Um, just hit that side of the room too. All right. So I shouldn't have done that. Uh, we're not all going to die. Not every Christian will be dead when Jesus comes back, but every Christian will be changed when, in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul says, what's some advice? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The word of God, friends, I think is clear. That when Jesus does return, the people of God, both those who are presently alive on earth when Jesus comes back, and those who have already gone on to be with the Lord, All of us are going to be gathered with Jesus in the air before his final arrival back on earth. Those who have died are going to see their bodies raised. I don't know how that's going to look. And transformed into eternal bodies and reunited with their souls. And the believers who are alive at the return of Christ, imagine this, are going to be physically caught up into the air and in the moment transformed physically into their eternal bodies. Bodies that will last forever and never wear out. That sounds awfully cool to me. Now, I think this all happens at the very end at the moment Jesus returns. I don't think this happens at a secret moment. A few years beforehand, though. Again, dear, brighter-than-me scholars would disagree with that. I'm okay with that. Do you remember two weeks ago when I talked to you about a parousia, a return, a coming? That's the word for Jesus' coming throughout the scriptures here. And I told you that that is the arrival of a king or dignitary in a formal way to a city, right? The king comes near the city. A herald, loud voice, announces his arrival. They might even blow a trumpet. Sound familiar? And the dignitaries inside the city come out of the city to meet 
the honored arrival, and they have a quick moment of formal greetings, and then you know what they do? As a people, they all walk together into the city. That is a parousia. They escort the king in. In just the same way, I believe that at Jesus' arrival, at his parousia, the children of God are going to be, there's going to be a, a, a voice, there's going to be a trumpet call that says, here I come. There's going to be the sign in the sky, and all the people of God are going to be gathered to the Savior in the sky and then come right with him to witness his triumphant return. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, I think describes it a little bit more of a military picture kind of too. It says, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it's called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Hey, we know who that is, right? Get this. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, at his return, is accompanied by the armies of heaven. And I actually believe that this is a reference to the resurrected saints of God, robed in clean robes, living in symbolically pure, perfect resurrection, you know, symbolically pure robes, or the robes symbolizing their perfect resurrection bodies, our perfect new sinless state. They're on white horses following the returning, conquering king, witnessing his triumph. By the way, don't worry if you don't know how to ride a horse. I, I think that'll get worked out if that's literal. <laughs> it might be. I'm not mad if it is. I like riding horses. But we don't return with Jesus to fight a battle, right? We return with Jesus to see the Lord take to himself that which is his by right. Now, why does Jesus give us this data? He surely didn't have to describe this much of his return, but he does. I think the Savior wants us to see that, you know, again, no matter how you handle details and timelines here, there's a day coming that's going to be different than any other day in human history. There's a day coming when nature itself, the sun, the moon, the stars, function differently than ever before. There's a day coming when the angels of God will gather to the Lord Jesus all the people who have ever belonged to him. There's a day coming when the Lord Jesus returns as king. And what then should we do? Hope in the return of Christ. God didn't give you this text so that you can argue with each other about which part is literal and which part is figurative. Nor did he give you this text so that we can divide over the scheduled order of events. I believe the Lord spoke these words to us for our comfort. 
He spoke these words to us in order to remind us that this life is not all that there is. He spoke these words to us to remind us that no amount of hardship in this world will ever stop the final arrival of the kingdom of God. He gave this to us to give us hope. So Christian, do hope. Be careful not to let yourself live in this world as if there's no future other than what you can see in the here and now. What did Paul tell the people of Thessalonica? Encourage each other with these truths. He told the Corinthians based on these thoughts, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The idea of the return of Jesus Christ is supposed to give you courage to make you obey the Lord. Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4 reads, If then you have been raised spiritually with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It is a mistake to live without a mind set on eternity. God wants you to know that there's a day to come when everything is going to be set right. He wants you to know that there's a day to come when you will see your Savior physically face to face. He wants you to know that there's a day to come when we will be given brand new resurrection bodies that will last forever and have good knees. He he wants us to know that Jesus, who already reigns in heaven right now, is going to rule over all of creation in a way that's visible and perfect. He wants us to know that Jesus wins and everyone who belongs to Jesus experiences the victory, so hope in the return of Christ. And there's a warning in this, I would think, for those who don't know Jesus. Jesus' return is going to come. He promised. Have you all ever known Jesus not to fulfill his promises? Which means you need to be on his side and under his grace before that day. I would urge you not to wait. Not one of you in this room is assured your next breath. (coughs) Believe in Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. Ask Jesus to give you grace. But when will all this occur? You all already know, don't you, that Jesus has refused to set a date for us to know. He didn't tell his disciples. We'll find that out next week. So what do you want to think? Second point, I believe it's a fair point. I believe that it was true for the disciples in the first century, and I believe it's true for us. Point number two, believe that Christ could return in your lifetime. Believe that Christ could return in your lifetime. 32 to 35 reads, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. 
Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Well, now we get a little metaphor from Jesus to help the disciples know about how to think about his return and the signs. Y'all know that when the trees start to bud, the weather changes, right? By the way, the budding of the trees does not cause the changing of the weather as far as we know. But they seem to know when it's about to get warm. Jesus says, look, when you see the signs that I've been talking to you about, the signs in verses 4 through 28, you can know my return, verses 29 through 31, is near. Now, when would Jesus' disciples have seen, quote, all these things? They would have seen them take place all through the first century, wouldn't they? False teachers? Check. Wars? Check. Famines, persecution, apostasy, gospel victory? Did that all take place in the first century? You betcha. And the fall of Jerusalem and the desolation that I think is being referred to in 15 to 20, 21, that all took place within Jesus' ministry, or within 40 years of Jesus' ministry time on earth, right? It was only four decades. So when the disciples saw all those things take place, they were to understand that the return of Jesus is near. That's what I believe he's saying to them. Well, that raises a neat question, doesn't it? Did any of you feel what the uncomfortable question is? <laughs> what kind of near? What the heck? Is near a temporal reference? Is it a time reference? What did Jesus say? It means that I am the return. He's at the very gates. What I would suggest to you is that it is less a time reference and more a reference to how little it will take for the Savior to be able to return. Now, I know that near is a, it really does feel like a time reference with a fig tree. I get that. But the word there for near is surely a reference both for space and time. It's used both ways in the New Testament. And what I think Jesus is telling us is there is not a sliver of time. There's not a single roadblock. There's not a, an, an item, you know, something to, to utterly delay his return once the things that he talked about in verses 4 through 28 take place. By the way, many people stumble there over verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That, that makes my time reference feel a little funny, doesn't it? Some people argue, by the way, that it must mean that whatever Jesus was talking about here, that, that all these things there means everything Jesus has said from verse 4 to 33, that everything he said has to take place, including his returning on the clouds, that that would have taken place within the lifetime of his disciples. Some people have argued that. Some of you have heard that. Liberal theologians, by the way, they just say, well, Jesus thought he would come back before his disciples died, but he was wrong. I'm not with them on that. Other people say, Oh, well, see, that return language is all symbolic. It's, it, you know, again, 29 through 31, it's, it's, it's symbolical. It's not literal. Other people say, well, when he said this generation will not pass away until my return, 
till all these things take place. Well, well, that, that's a reference. That's a reference to a this generation coming in the future, or some people have said this generation is a reference to the entire the Jewish race in general that the Jews will not pass away before all the things take place. I would say none of that stuff really needs to be that confusing. You know what I think the phrase this generation means? I think it means exactly what he said, this generation. The generation alive when Jesus spoke these words would not pass away until all these things take place. Well, wait a minute, then what did Jesus mean by all these things? Because the generation alive when Jesus spoke those words did not see Jesus coming back on the clouds with power and great glory. I would suggest to you that it is illogical to think that Jesus meant his return, verses 29 through 31, is part of all these things. In verse 33, 32, 33, Jesus said, all these things taking place is the sign that his return is near. It is illogical to think that Jesus is saying that his return is a sign that his return is near. That's not what he's saying. I mean, if I said to you, my being in your kitchen is a sign that my arrival at your front door is near, you would feel awkward, wouldn't you? What Jesus is saying is all the signs that will point to his return, including the sign of the fall of Jerusalem, is going to take place during the lifetimes of the generation that was alive standing before him that day. And that would mean then that now, though it's been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus said these words, you know what we know about his return? It's near. There's no obstacle to Jesus' return that cannot take place very quickly. We have no reason, no reason to assume that the return of Jesus is impossible in our lifetimes. Again, some of my dear friends would say there's no reason you assume that it couldn't happen right now. At the end of 2 Peter, by the way, Peter was old, about to die. And he talks about the fact that there were people making fun of Christians because it appeared to take Jesus a really long time to return. You talk about near, my return's near. What did Peter say to people that would mock that? Chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, Peter said, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. A thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Has Jesus been slow in his return? No. He's not been slow. Well, if Jesus has not been slow in his return, don't let the use of the word near trouble you. Friends, the signs are fulfilled. And once the elect have all been rescued, the Lord is going to return. 
Jesus said to us in verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not pass away. He's saying what he said here, it's more sure, more stable, more steady than the earth below or the sky above. No matter how delayed it appears, no matter how unlikely it appears, the return of the Lord Jesus is a sure thing. So not only should we, I believe, hope in the return of Jesus, I believe that we should also believe that his return is possible in our lifetimes. Now, if you asked me, or if you really put me to the question, I would say to you that I think that there are a few events that will take place that have been prophesied before the Savior's return. But I'll tell you this, none of those things are things that would take decades to accomplish. Jesus' return is close. By the way, if I'm wrong about that there are things to take place before Jesus returns, then he could come back right now. I wouldn't want to chance it. Jesus is awaiting the command of his Father to return. And you and I need to realize that no matter how far off it may seem to us, the universe can be changed very, very, very quickly. So I would suggest believe that the Lord Jesus could return in your lifetime. I think that's what he wanted his disciples to believe. I think that's what he wants us to believe. You know, Christians, some people make a mistake by thinking so much about the return of Christ that they don't live well in the here and now. Don't do that. But other people make the mistake of assuming that the return of Jesus is something so far away we should never think about it. Don't make that mistake either. God wants you to know that it is possible that this world would go on for hundreds, even thousands more years before Jesus comes back. And if he does, there will be birth pains and there will be gospel victory. But it's also possible that Jesus could return far sooner than any of you are expecting. And the key for you and me is to live in the genuine hope of his return. Friends, I'm not telling you a fictional tale. This is not a Disney princess wishing upon a star. This is God's honest truth. It's the promise of Jesus. He will come again. He will raise the dead. He will rule forever. So Christians, I want you to pray that God would help you to live with your mind firmly fixed on eternity, even while you live to honor the Lord here in the here and now. Long for the day of Christ's return. Live as one who knows that the king is on his way to get you. And while you're waiting, Share the gospel with the nations so you can be a part of the glorifying of our Lord when he comes, until he comes. And if you don't yet know Jesus, I urge you to make peace with him before he comes. Repent, believe, and be saved. Let's pray together.